Welcome to the third Passion Projects Showcase from Big Bend Community College featuring Dr. Dennis Nepp as he talks about his life and philosophy. It is free willing. It is fun. Laugh with us. We're glad you're here. Let me introduce Paul to everyone. Let me introduce Paul, everyone. Paul uh, organized the Plato Washington group, which has been my uh, my absolute favorite um, local uh, philosophy group. Um, it used to be the case that, um, it used to be the case when I was hired here, I could fill six logic courses a year easily with, with students clamoring to get in um, uh, because it was an SQR class with no prerequisites. Um, and then students still had to pass math 98. They still had to pass prerequisite math, but they could take logic first before they did that. Um, and then the University of Washington decided they didn't want to do that anymore and they wanted to nix SQR for, for philosophy. And Paul Herrick organized a group of all the logic constructors in the state. Um, and uh, and we, all, we all kind of unionized and we all fought to make this compromise. We've got a compromise now. You have to take Math 98 before you can take logic, it's compromise. And all my logic numbers have really plummeted, all right? But at least it still has the SQR status on the state. And Paul Herrick is the person who's mostly responsible for, uh, for doing that. And uh, Paul Thank and I have been uh, good friends for a long, a long time, and we always enjoy uh, seeing each other. And I've, I've, I've slept drunkenly on his couch before. And uh... <laughs> after a big philosophy party. <laughs> After a big well, party. <laughs> I, I not to rely too much on the cliche, but I have heard wonderful stories. Yes, so it's really nice to see you in person, kind of, um, and to be able to put a face to the name that we've heard so much about. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. You're welcome, Paul. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking this up. So David's asking if they're all hidden. Are they all hidden? Yes. Mm. So it's just us? We're, we're, uh, we're doing it webinar style, mm -hmm. and so there are only the panelists who are showing right now, as well as Dennis. Um, and so what we can do once Dennis starts to do his presentation is we can all go to our um, avatars or whatever the, we can put up the picture that we have and then let Dennis be the focus as he goes through his presentation. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so that's how we'll proceed. So um, everyone who is available in the chat right now doesn't necessarily, isn't available on screen right now. It's great to see so many people signing on. Look at this, wow. <laughs> I love all the chats. Woo. All right. Well, okay. So I'm going to move you guys over here. And then I uh, close this window and I made a PowerPoint for us today. Jennifer, do you have your hand up on purpose? Oh. Nope. Okay. Marshall Horton is a colleague of ours and a good friend of Dennis's and mine from the Seattle area. She teaches at Seattle Central. Nice. Gotcha. 
Okay, and then you're all over there. Okay, and then if I share my screen, how does that look? Good. Perfect. Okay. All right. Okay, so should I leave it there or should I stop sharing while we we'll do introductions? Rhonda, well, you're muted. <clears throat> maybe I'll stop share while we. I'm yapping away. Oh, and should I have a background? <laughs> I have a background? Whatever you're comfortable with. You like that? <laughs> sure. Uh, let's go. Yeah. That works too. It's not distracting. Okay. Oops, now move this over here so you don't see that. Oh, Marsh is here from Seattle. Oh, she's great. Thanks for being here at everyone. All right, ready when you are. Melinda, do you see more people coming in? Do you think we should wait for about two more minutes? Can I tell you about something that's not about the presentation or you want me to kill time? Sure. So uh, Sarah asked me to write a biography and I thought, well, I had to add something so uh, interesting to the biography. So I added that as a teenager, I drove a 1967 Camaro. Were you surprised by that when I wrote that in the biography? Did, was that, did, do you know what a 1967 Camaro is? Yeah, yeah, you know what a 1967 Camaro is. Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't like, a, it wasn't a collector's item. It wasn't a Z28 or an SS or anything. It was a plain Jane and it was yellow and red. So it was like undesirable colors and things like that. But it, so it was a little cheaper and the interior was beat up. But someone had replaced the engine with the V8 350, bigger than what the stock engine was. And I put a quadrajet uh, uh, carburetor on it and uh, headers and glass packs, the loudest uh, exhaust system allowed by law. And that was back in the 80s when loud stereos were the new thing. And so I put great big speakers in it with an amplifier and all sorts of stuff. It's really fun. That was my former life. <laughs> I put a link to a picture of uh, a 1967 Camaro. In oh, I bet it's a pretty one. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a nice one. Yes. Yeah. No seat belts, no seat belts. And of course, the uh, all of the things on the dash were made of metal and sticking out so that if you crashed it, you would impale yourself on the, <laughs> which I did eventually do. I did eventually crash that Camaro. I rolled it. I rolled it actually. I wonder if my cousin Mikey's joining us. Mikey's ridden in the Camaro. <laughs> you want another story? This one related to our topic? Sure. Let's give people a little bit more time. Give people a little more time. So yeah, I think Melinda might have stepped off for a second. So all right. So this one's related to our topic. This was, but uh, Jen and I were talking earlier, and, and uh, I remember this story. When we were in uh, graduate school, they had these. Um, we did mock interviews for right. We're supposed to get jobs in philosophy, so we did these. Uh, we did these interviews, um, and then afterwards they gave us a critique. And I remember the critique they gave me was that um, I, when they asked me the question, uh, "What is my favorite class to teach?" I said, oh, I love teaching introduction to philosophy because I like introducing students to uh, 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 trial and death Socrates. And then they told me afterwards in the critique, 
you can't say that. You can't say you like teaching freshman classes. You have to say you like teaching these, these um, upper level uh, uh, specialty classes and, uh, and stuff like that, like empiricism or rationalism or so forth. And that was one of the lights, you know, that was one of the flags that told me um, that maybe the, maybe the regular university system isn't for me, that this isn't where I, uh, where I belong. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it at the time, but I was prepping myself for a career at a community college. <laughs> that was a nicer story. And we're all the better for it. <laughs> you, you have such wonderful stories. Well, Do you want to kick us off, Tiffany? with our housekeeping and other information. Yeah, uh, it looks like we have uh, people are here. So um, it's so nice to see everyone on here. I recognize some um, fellow colleagues. Um, I recognize a few people with Dennis's last name. So that's gonna be fun. Um, just a couple quick housekeeping things, uh, nothing too too intense, um, but just we just ask that everyone on uh, mutes themselves while the presentation is happening. Uh, the chat box is open if you have any sort of well wishes, um, any stories about Dennis you'd like to share, or just uh, revelations that come to you as he's presenting, feel free to use the <laughs> chat box. Um, at the end of our event, we will open it up to some questions. So if you've got any questions, uh, you can use the Zoom Q&A function, or you can type them in the chat box as well. I'll, I'll kind of monitor that and pull out the questions. but. Uh, yeah, that's about it. And I'm uh, going to hand it over to our uh, president, Dr. Sarah Thompson-Tweedy, to kick us off. Hey, good evening, everybody. I'm so glad you're all here so that we can celebrate the work of Dennis Knapp together. Um, what, we're what, we do tonight, what we're doing tonight is called a Passion Project Showcase. And Big Ben started this quarterly event in the winter of 2021 to feature the works of wonder that inspire members of our school community. And thus far, we have heard from Dr. Allison Palumbo and Dr. Jim Hamm. And at Big Bend, we are fortunate enough to be surrounded, to just absolutely be surrounded by talented and awesome people. Our school is full of faculty, administrators, staff, and students who are experts in a wide variety of areas. And their work is driven by excitement and curiosity, and we want to celebrate those love labors. So that's why we're here tonight. And I'm happy and so proud to introduce uh, Dr. Dennis Knapp, who was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas. As a teenager, he worked as a machinist at his father's business and drove a 1967 Camaro, which we've already talked a little bit about. Uh, it did not have seat belts. He started college at Wichita State University as an engineering student. Can you imagine that? Dennis Knapp as an engineering student, but eventually found his own path as a philosophy major. Dennis went to graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis, where he met Jennifer McCarthy. The rest they say is history. And together they moved to Moses Lake in 2000 when Dennis accepted the job at Big Bend Community College. Their two kids were born in 2002 and 2004, and Dennis has a very long list of published work, and we are proud to have him at our college and to hear from him tonight. So take it away, Dennis.
You're muted, Dennis. Oh, I was muted. You're muted. The Jen came around to tell me too. <laughs> I yelled it actually. Okay. You didn't hear me. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Thank you very much for putting this together. Thank you very much for the to the committee. Uh, thank you very much to for Rhonda for making helping me make a lot of these slides. And uh, and first and and also thank you very much for Sarah Thompson Tweedy for being the uh, the kind of leader who would uh, who would encourage people to do something like this. And we're really thankful that you're uh, that you're here at Big Bend. Um, so uh, let's uh, let's start. Uh, how am I going to go forward? Go forward. So really, I got to talk about David Souls. Uh, when I switched from a philosophy, uh, when I switched from an engineering uh, major to a philosophy major, um, it was really uh, David Souls who was my uh, who was my inspiration and in, in what I modeled a lot of my uh, career on. I know I'm nowhere near the accomplishments that David was. David's if you look at David's CV; it's a gigantic CV of, a, of accomplishments. This is just a little bit of the stuff that uh, David has done. But what I really want to draw your attention to is the down at the bottom. I cut, I took this off of his CV. Uh, the course is taught, and I count twenty nine different classes that uh, David teach that ha David has taught at uh, uh, at Wichita State, and that's what really I wanted to be able to do. Like that's really what in inspired me. We had a lot of people there who. Um, you know, were really specialized that they maybe they did uh, philosophy of science or maybe they did philosophy of uh, social sciences or maybe they biomedical ethics. But David really did all of this stuff. And I took five different classes from David. And I also um, I also uh, 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 was a teaching assistant for David and some of his other classes. Um, and I really liked all of the, the breadth of all the classes that he was able to, uh, to, to teach. I recently, you, you guys have hired me to teach a, a business ethics class, which I'm really excited for. And I, I reached out to my friends in the Plato Washington group for advice. And they told me about a good textbook that I should use. And I bought it recently and I look in there and David Souls has an essay in the business ethics uh, textbook that I'm going to be, uh, that I'm going to be using. Uh, I also learned from David um, this this idea of teaching as performance. He was he was really good in the introduction of philosophy class with the with these with the students of using a lot of memorable phrases and things that caught a lot of their attention. He did things like he used examples like imagine that I'm hallucinating a a giant purple grasshopper with head listening to the Rolling Stones with headphones attached to its feet. Like, and the reason I know that one so well is I heard that example uh, several uh, several times. Um, and um, oh man, the chat keeps going up. <laughs> uh, and um, another thing is that he never asked for questions. Instead, he always asked for. Questions, comments, arguments, reputations, criticisms, and sea stories. And I took five different classes from him, and I also TA'd for him. Uh, and so multiple times each class, I would hear him ask for questions, comments, arguments, reputations, criticisms, or sea stories, to the point where it just became this in-joke with all of us that something that David said. We even, there's a group of us, because that's something else I really enjoyed, was that there was a group, there was a community of us. There was actually a lounge with couches and coffee, and we would talk about ideas. Uh, and so forth. And the group of us uh, bought him an anthology of sea stories when you're just for a joke. <laughs> With their help, man, can I go forward? There we go. With their help, I was able to get accepted to Washington University in St. Louis. 
uh, which is a very prestigious university. I'm very thankful for my education there. Uh, you look out, it's got this really gothic feel to it. There's little gargoyles in the corner. It's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, this is the entrance to Bush Hall. Uh, where the philosophy department is located. So I've gone through those doors many, many times uh, uh, throughout the uh, throughout the 90s. Um, uh, and uh, it is named after uh, Anheuser-Busch, the, the German beer barons of the 19th century. And that sort of opening of history was something that I really appreciated about being in St. Louis. St. Louis is an old city for, for being in the Midwest. Um, I discovered things like the St. Louis Hegelians and, uh, and, uh, and I've discovered little old nooks and crannies with old bookstores and stuff. There was lots of interesting discoveries that I, I did uh, in uh, uh, there. A lot of them were discoveries and explorations that I did with Jennifer. Uh, uh, Jen and I met at a St. Patrick's Day party in 1985. Yay, Jen. And we deliberately went on excursions throughout the city and went places and, uh, and, uh, and uh, to learn more about where we were living. Uh, I did a dissertation. Well, while I was there, I continued with this idea of sort of being a generalist and learning a whole lot about a bunch of th different things so I could teach a bunch of different classes. I, I took lots of classes. I, I attended classes that I didn't have to for the degree. I attended classes in the religious studies department from Frank Flynn. I attended classes in the history department and intellectual history. Uh, I did lots of things to just to learn a whole lot more. Uh, Jen and I went to, this is one of the best things we did in grad school. Jen and I went to uh, a Mayan a language a, a seminar that was a weekend long where we learned about the Mayan language it had nothing to do with my degree or what I was doing. I just wanted to learn all of these different things while I was there. Um, Bob Barrett was very similar to uh, David in the sense that uh, Bob also uh, taught a wide variety of courses, although most of the stuff that he taught was more, more recent. And so I really uh, was gravitating gravitated Bob for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I wanted to work with him as my advisor. And one of the reasons I picked C.S. Peirce was that that was the oldest philosopher that Bob was qualified to direct a dissertation on. Um, and also uh, uh, Peirce had a, had a reputation of being a philosopher's philosopher as being someone who's really uh, challenging and esoteric. And that I thought was uh, exciting. And also uh, the new uh, anthology of his uh, writings had just come out. And, that, and so that was helpful as well. Man, how am I going to go forward easily? Just like that, I guess. And then I was hired at Big Ben's in 2000. Uh, and I teach a wide variety of classes here. I think I teach seven different classes. I also have taught pre-college algebra several times. Um, but uh, And so I, I really like having the, the variety of classes uh, here. I didn't know it at the time, but my education was really setting me up to be at a community college. I had no experience in community colleges when I applied. I'd never taken a class at a community college or taught a class at a community college. It was a real, it was a real leap of faith to, to take a job at a community college uh, in a state that I'd never been to uh, and so forth. But I'm, I'm really, really glad uh, that, I, uh, that I did. I really did try at first to, 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 to use this as a springboard to, to, to go, get that university degree that I was, uh, you know, that they, they trained me to get. Uh, but uh, it just didn't work out, and I just didn't fit in. I didn't fit into the um, conference uh, 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 culture. I, I, I wasn't really able to write well to, to get things published in an academic journal. I still have never been published. Well, I've had book reviews published, but, but uh, I've never had my own essay published in an academic journal. I just really wasn't fitting into that whole um, area. 
So this guy kind of came to my rescue, uh, Bill Erlen. Uh, I don't know if Bill's here tonight, uh, but I did, ins- I did send uh, Bill an invitation uh, to, to come because I, um, I found a voice in writing about pop culture. It really, it really fit with what I was doing. It really fit with the desire to connect with uh, uh, you know, introductory level students and introduce people to the trial and death of Socrates. Um, and also, I just, well, I just love pop culture. There's that, there's that as well. And uh, I also agree with, uh, with Bill that philosophy is everywhere, that you can find it all over the place. So people had been sending me... Um, some of the books, you know, as gifts, the, the, I remember I got the Simpsons in philosophy one year as a gift, you know, and so I'd been getting these as, as gifts, but it was really when I, I bought a copy of Metallica in philosophy, that was the one that I really, I read it and I was like, I could write this. And so I wrote to Bill and I said, you know, I'm an 80s metalhead with long hair. I, I can write about Metallica and philosophy. Why am I not in this anthology? Basically is what I wrote to him. And ever since then, I've been on his uh, mailing list uh, of, of looking for uh, uh, contributions for him. What they do is they get about a dozen or maybe two dozen different academics from all over, uh, all over the place. And we all write little chapters for these uh, for these books. They're about twelve pages long, and they're kind of they're kind of bait and switch, really. They're really like, oh, do you like this pop culture thing? Well, that's a lot like this thing we talk about in philosophy. So they're kind they're kind of bait and switch, uh, uh, you know, uh, behind it. We're using the, the something in pop culture to introduce an idea in philosophy, and that really just fit well with me. So the first one I did was on uh, was on uh, Twilight. Um, and uh, and I'm forever thankful to uh, to uh, the editor. Uh, who was the editor on this? Rebecca was the editor on, on, on this that I always talk to. Re- Rebecca wrote to us all. She was so excited that uh, this book had been translated in so many different languages. I, I wish I could find that email uh, that where she told us what languages it had been published in. But uh, I remember one of them was Polish. So somewhere out there, someone is reading this in Polish about Big Bang Community College uh, here in Moses Lake. And, and I just like that. I love that I'm talking about our college and all, at all these different places. We were all asked to write um, a little um, of sort of funny biographies. And so that's what's at the bottom of this. You usually have uh, three lines in them. Uh, first would be where you work. Uh, the second would be some of the other things that you've uh, that you've published um, uh, in the uh, in the series. And the third one is some sort of joke about the uh, about the pop culture. Uh, and this was my this was my first attempt at a joke at a pop at the pop culture. That I suggest that Bell and Edward move to Eastern Washington, where the vampires would uh, would, would sparkle. Now. We're not doing, I'm not doing the philosophy of Twilight, like I'm not criticizing Twilight or anyway. Uh, I wasn't really even a fan of Twilight. Uh, I'm not the target audience. I'm not who they're writing for or anything. But what I was able to do and what was so fun for me was I was able to take something in that and connect it to philosophy. So the scenes in which she learns that Bella learns that uh, uh, Edward is not like other boys. Uh, you know, he stops a, he stops a, a a van from crashing into her and leaves a dent in the side of the van. Well, that was obvious to me to be an example of Persian semiotics. Uh, and I had studied Persian in graduate school. There are semiotics everywhere. Everywhere is a sign. And that was an index. He says there's icon, index, and symbol. And that was an index. And so I went through and I found examples of all this. And I discovered that I could do this really well. And so this is what I'm going to be sharing with you tonight, really. 
were all these different publications that I uh, that I wrote. So this has all been kind of an introduction just to just to this part here. All these different publications, and one of the things that I tried to do is I tried to challenge myself to write about something different every time. I didn't want to just write about purse, and so I wrote my first. Well, the first publication was about Charles Sanders' purse, but then I wanted to do something else. I wanted to try something else. So for this one, for Alice in Wonderland, I connected this one to the social contract theory of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Um, I, uh, if you remember in the uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, at, the, uh, at the end of it, she's, uh, she's on trial and it's a totally absurd trial. It doesn't make any sense at all. And she says, uh, she says uh, well, you're nothing but a pack of cards and knocks them all over and, uh, and, and rejects the, the court. And I make the argument that she doesn't really have a social contract in, in Wonderland. And so she's justified in, uh, in doing that. Uh, all, right, all right, someone in the chat. Here we go. Interactive, interactive part. Someone in the chat. They, they, they altered my biography. This is the only time this has happened to me. They altered my biography, and they made a mis They made a really big mistake in my biography. It's right at the end, towards the end. Can anyone see what's the, what's the mistake in my biography? And then while they're doing that, um, this is the only one of my publications that I've assigned in class. Uh, and I also, uh, this was the first time I received fan mail, which was really kind of fun. Uh, this person wrote to me and said that uh, they teach this course on, you love cats, exactly right, I love cats. So they changed my biography on that. Uh, but uh, uh, it was really flattering that someone wrote to me and said, oh, I used your essay about the social contract theory um, in this class I'm teaching. Uh, for this one, I used uh, Martha Nussbaum's interpretation of Aristotle's catharsis. So we often think of Aristotle's catharsis theory as being that you, you vomit out uh, these ideas. Uh, you get rid of pity and fear because they're bad for you. Uh, certainly Nietzsche understood Aristotle in that, in that way. Uh, but Martha Nussbaum is just this wonderful uh, 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 philosopher who, who argues that we've misunderstood the word catharsis and really what catharsis is, is clarification. It's cleaning things up. It's making things explicit and see, making us see things as they really are. Uh, and I just think that's just a fascinating interpretation of Aristotle's um, a catharsis theory. Uh, and so I was really proud to be able to write this and put that idea out in the, in the world from, uh, from Martha Nussbaum. Um, I got to briefly to, to meet Martha Nussbaum in grad school, actually, which was really uh, uh, quite fun. Um, and the thing that they're trying to make clear in this, in, in this uh, a book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, that is the English translation of the Swedish. And I am married to a wonderful woman who speaks multiple languages, including Swedish. And, she, and so she knows the, the, the original title in Swedish is uh, Men Who Hate Women is what the original title is. And the book is really all about a violence against women. And Aristotle's theory is that art gives us a way of seeing things in reality that we really need to know about. And I think that's a really fascinating uh, idea. It's completely opposite of Plato, who thinks that art, you know, takes you away from reality and and uh, and so forth. So I think that that's uh, really um, uh, a great. Yeah, didn't I know that about Martha Nussbaum and catharsis? It's really interesting. It's really fascinating. All right, let's go on. All right, so this is actually the first one that I wrote. 
uh, the first one I wrote was the about the Hobbit and philosophy, but they they want to make money. This is a business. It was kind of fun to create this alternate sort of universe where I was outside the mainstream of of uh, academia. I wasn't going to conferences. Instead, I'm I'm publishing in books that they're selling for money and they uh, and so forth. So it was it's kind of neat. But anyway, they are um, uh, they were waiting until Peter Jackson finished the uh, uh, finished the. Uh, uh, the Hobbit movies, and that's that's they wanted to ride the coattails of um, of uh, Hollywood there. Get these in the bookstore uh, when the Hobbits in the theaters is the is the idea here, um, and so that kind of makes it son of a funny experience that sometimes we're writing about things. Um, you know, before the big thing is released that everyone knows about. And there's some weird things that happen with, uh, with that. But anyway, uh, this is one that I used to Kwame Anthony Opaya's theory of cosmopolitanism, which is really, really fascinating stuff. Um, Opaya himself is really interesting. He was the president of the American Philosophical Association for a while. Uh, he was born in Ghana, educated in England, and now teaches at, uh, where is he, Yale? I think he's at Yale. As he puts it in one of his books, He's taught Zeno's paradoxes on three different continents is what he puts it in his book. And that, and so it's, uh, I really like reading his, uh, his stuff. I even got to ask, uh, I got to call in at a, uh, on a talk show once and ask him a question. Anyway, um, what I did with this one is I connected Bill Bilbaggin's experience growing up as a provincial um, to, uh, to becoming a cosmopolitan. He's so provincial at the beginning. If you remember at the, in The Hobbit, he's so provincial at the beginning that they, he thinks that the, the hobbits, they think the hobbits that live on the other side of the river are really weird. Oh my gosh, those hobbits on the other side of the river, they're like so weird, you know? And, and that's, that's so fascinating to me that, that provincialism, uh, uh, when you live so close to, together. And then he learns when he leaves the Shire, he, he learns about elves and dwarves and humans and all these other things and comes to appreciate all of these other different uh, cultures. And so that's what uh, uh, I thought was fun. Uh, so I had fun with the bio on this one. I said the misty Cascade Mountains, right? So as, as the Misty Mountains. And then the, uh, the reference on the bottom, he hopes this book explains what a burrow hobbit is and whether you can cook them. That was from our favorite scene when I would read this to my uh, kids, uh, that was from our favorite scene uh, where they defeat the uh, where they defeat the uh, uh, the trolls. That's right, where they defeat the trolls. It was my favorite scene because uh, uh, and the kids just loved it. We read that scene over and over again, um, uh, and uh, uh, where he outsmarts the trolls rather than uh, outfights them. And then when they made a movie, they made it a fight scene. They ruined it. <laughs> All right, so since I had written to Bill saying, hey, I got long hair, I'm an 80s metalhead, I listen to heavy metal, uh, why didn't I write about Metallica and philosophy? Since I'd written to Bill about that, Bill reached out to me and said, well, we're doing another heavy metal band, we're doing Black Sabbath, do you want to be involved in this one? And I said, yes, 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 I'll be involved. But what I didn't tell him is that I'd never really heard Black Sabbath before <laughs> because I was an 80s metalhead snob. We didn't listen to things from the 70s. That stuff was old. We didn't listen to old music. We listened to new music, right? So I really had never heard Black Sabbath before. So I spent a whole year listening to Black Sabbath and reading Ozzy Osbourne's biography and Tony Iommi's autobiography. And, and it was just 
great. It was great. It was great to spend a whole year discovering Black Sabbath and, and how much fun, how much fun that was. Um, and, and then the, the, the year culminated in 2013 with my cousin Mike and his uh, son Reed uh, uh, and uh, Jen, all the four of us uh, saw Black Sabbath uh, in the concert at the, uh, the Gorge Amphitheater, which was just a, a really phenomenal uh, experience. Uh, my original idea was to write about the just war theory, and I had an idea about, uh, about uh, their song War Pigs. <laughs> Your research has been so fun. I know, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. <laughs> so um, I originally was going to write something about just war theory and uh, and war pigs, and I and I wrote that up and I sent it to Bill, and Bill said, "No, no, no, someone else could write that. Could you do something more interesting? Could you write about drugs?" And I thought, "Sure, Bill, I could write about drugs. I've read about drug use. Sure, sure, I could write about drugs." And so I scrambled to find an idea to, about drug use, and what I came up with was um, uh, Nietzsche. Nietzsche's uh, theory of the Apollo and the Dionysian. I had been a Nietzsche fan as an undergraduate. Like I read all of Nietzsche's stuff and as an undergraduate. So, but, oh, the new Dune movie is awesome. And Ray Fayette's little book. Oh, good. Well, I got to watch it. Um, uh, um, but I had been a fan of Nietzsche as an undergraduate. And, uh, and his theory of the uh, uh, Apollo and the Dionysian as the creation of, uh, of ancient Greek theater is, uh, is basically the idea that there's kind of two kinds of madness together. That uh, a Dionysus, as you know, is the god of wine. Uh, and that's the god of, of group madness, of, of drinking and singing songs together, uh, which is uh, an incredible experience to, to be able to drink and sing together and it bonds people together. Uh, and Apollo is the god of individual madness, of hallucinations, of visions, of, 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 of prophecy, of epileptic seizures, and so forth. And Nietzsche's thesis is that it's the synthesis of those two kinds of madness that creates the theater of, of, uh, of uh, ancient Greece. Uh, there had been other uh, writers who had taken Nietzsche's uh, theory and applied it to rock and roll bands. Uh, uh, Jim Morrison himself, actually, Jim Morrison of The Doors uh, was heavily influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, and tried to make The Doors uh, uh, Dionysian and their in their uh, presentation. So it wasn't unusual that I was doing what I that I was doing this. I was connecting um, Black Sabbath to uh, uh, to Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, the most fun part of this was uh, I made up some uh, fake uh, Nietzschean aphorisms and I changed things in there to make them uh, uh, refer to Black Sabbath. <laughs> what are you guys putting in the links here? Stuff about Nietzsche? Don't read Nietzsche. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. Don't read Nietzsche. He's bad for you. Uh, with this one, I got the help of uh, Eric at Old Word Trading Company down here in Moses Lake. Uh, um, they have a, a, a big collection of, of uh, old um, uh, uh, comics that they, that they sell there. And uh, and uh, Eric was helped me uh, find uh, uh, lots of uh, uh, comics that had to do with different iterations of, uh, of Superman. This was just before. Again, uh, we're writing these things. So it's a business. They're trying to make money. So they're writing these things so that they're in the bookstore when people are going to go see the new Superman movie. And I really did not like Zack Snyder's Superman movie. I really did not like it. And uh, one of the funny things is, is if you look at the table of contents, like there's, there's probably about 20 people who write for each one of these. Like I'm chapter 19, right? 
So there's a whole lot of topics uh, in this one about how uh, Superman is the, the big blue. Uh, this article is probably better than the movie. <laughs> there, are lots of, there are lots of articles about it, written in here, lots of essays uh, about uh, Superman as the big blue Boy Scout, right? And he's got these really strict morals and he never kills anyone. And what did Zack Snyder do? He has him kill someone so so it was fun it's this is an example where it's funny that we get these things written before the thing is in the theaters that everyone uh, knows uh, knows about it um but i enjoyed uh, uh writing this one uh this one i connected to uh wittgenstein again i'm trying to challenge myself and do something different each time uh, this one i i i um connected to Wittgenstein and his concept of a family resemblance. As I said, Eric introduced me to all the different iterations of Superman. There's actually a wide variety of different looking uh, uh, characters who have been called Superman in the comics. Uh, there was the whole death of Superman narrative and there were four different rival Supermans at one time. One of my favorite iterations of Superman is uh, there's a one called Superman Red Sun. And it's part of the sort of what if narrative, you know, what if you, so you know the mythology where Superman's in a, he's in a spaceship, right? And he's a baby in his spaceship and he lands in Kansas, right? Well, what if it, it, he had been 12 hours later and the earth rotated uh, uh, 180 degrees and he landed in 1950s Stalinist Russia. And so this book, uh, Superman Red Sun has Superman, right? And he's clearly identified as Superman, but he's got, the, he's got the Soviet sickle and hammer on his chest. But you can clearly see that he's Superman in every other way, except for the fact that he's got the, the Soviet sickle and hammer on his, uh, on his chest. And so that gave me an opportunity to talk about Wittgenstein and how there really isn't an essence of Superman, that instead there are all these different overlapping characteristics. And there may, be, there may not be any characteristics that all of the Superman have, but there may be most characteristics that most of them have in common. <laughs> Does that make any sense? I don't know. <laughs> How am I doing on time? 7.06. All right. Okay. Oh, this one I, I, I really enjoy, and I want to come back to a lot of these uh, uh, topics in this, uh, in this one. Um, so when we went to see Avatar, our babysitter, and I even started my essay with this, when we went to see Avatar, our babysitter said, it's just like Dances with Wolves. <laughs> Oh, thanks for spoiling it, kid. Right? So it's just like Dances with Wolves. And if you remember, the movie Avatar is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's cowboys and Indians in space, except the, uh, the Indians uh, uh, win uh, this time. Uh, I don't know how many people recognize that, but it was really obvious to me that the Navi uh, were supposed to be contemporary Native Americans. They were supposed to be Native Americans. Uh, well, there's even a line in the in the movie, and I use this quote as as uh, the title of my essay. Uh, we have an indigenous population of humanoids called the Navi. Now, I had recently read uh, this book by uh, Scott Pratt uh, called uh, Negative Pragmatism. Um, so I'd written a dissertation on Charles Sanders Peirce and the American Pragmatist Movement. All of my education was uh, about um, European intellectual history, ancient Greece, and uh, you know the empiricists and the rationalists and Immanuel Kant and so forth. So it was all European stuff. And Scott Pratt really 
um, challenged a lot of my uh, preconceived uh, ideas, which was just wonderful. Pratt's thesis is that many of the elements that we associate with the pragmatist movement, things like um, pluralism, um, community, place, all these things that are uh, in uh, pragmatism uh, that are, uh, are found first in Native American thought. Um, and that's what makes the, the pragmatist movement different from European philosophy. Uh, pragmatism is the, is the only uh, homegrown American philosophical movement. All the other isms are all from, uh, from other places, but pragmatism is, the, is an American movement. And one of the hallmarks of pragmatism is the idea that uh, we, we respect the other person's path, that we have a pluralism, we have, there are many multiple uh, viable ways of living uh, on this planet, and that you have to, you have to recognize that your uh, that your brothers and sisters have other paths uh, uh, too, um, and so things like that um, are really interesting. So I wrote up this um, uh, abstract and I sent it to the editor, um, and the editor said, "Well, you also got to read this book. Uh, it was called American Thought, and it's an anthology of uh, of. Uh, so this is something that's uh, fairly new. We now have a uh, uh, indigenous Americans uh, uh, getting PhDs in philosophy and writing about philosophical topics from uh, their own unique perspective. Um, and so they're talking about a lot of the, uh, you know, Descartes' cogito ergo sum, you know, things like that, some really standard philosophical topics, but from a very different perspective. Um, and uh, it was just an eye-opening experience to read these, uh, to read these essays. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm positive I learned more writing this than anyone would ever learn from reading it. I really enjoyed uh, uh, learning about all of this, uh, all of this stuff. Oh, so I mentioned in here, I was dry, I drive a 1990 Toyota Corolla. So that's what I drove for a long, long time. We, we finally, we finally gave that car away uh, last year, we gave it away. Uh, so that's how much my life changed uh, from when my, uh, right? I went from a 1967 Camaro with a V8 to my wife's 1990 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> Um, I really, I really enjoyed writing this one. Uh, this is the first time that I got to use um, uh, some Hegel. Um, Hegel was um, forbidden fruit, right? Hegel is forbidden fruit. Many of my um, uh, professors, when they uh, uh, would say, just automatically say horrible negative things about Hegel, uh, often when they talked about the history of the philosophy department, it, the narrative often started with, well, after we chased out all of the woolly-headed Hegelians, right? So there's, there was always this negative idea about, uh, about Hegel. Uh, I'd already mentioned Frank Flynn and that uh, I was uh, taking classes from Frank Flynn in the uh, Religious Studies Department, even though they weren't part of my degree. Um, and uh, Frank Flynn, I grew so close to Frank Flynn, I um, cared for his mother uh, when they were on vacation once. She was at their house with hospice care. Um, and uh, uh, we stayed at his house when... Uh, uh, I went back to for the PhD ceremony um, and say what? And he married us. Of course, I was going to get to that. Of course, that was the culmination. He married us. He, he performed our, our um, wedding ceremony um, and uh, um, he even quoted some Hegel in our, uh, in our wedding ceremony. Um, I did uh, uh, dedicate this. Uh, did I dedicate this one, Frank? I don't know if I remember if I did or not. But anyway, I read uh, I read the uh, um, 
Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs. Uh, we've always been um, uh, Apple uh, users here. Uh, I know lots of my tech friends are against Apple, but uh, Apple is for Apple is for uh, people who don't like computers, basically, who just want the thing to work. Uh, and that's what that's what Apple is uh, is for. Um, and so we've long used Apple uh, uh, in our uh, in our house here. Um, and I read Walter Iverson's uh, biography of Steve Jobs, uh, and it was neatly divided into three stages, just like a Hegelian dialectic. And all throughout Steve Jobs' life were um, all of these different contradictions. So the basic idea behind Hegel is that Kant, Kant says, if you try to speculate about the uh, creation of the world, you lead yourself to contradictions. You can make an argument that says the world uh, has been around forever and it's infinite and it seems totally valid. And you can make another argument that says the, the world is finite and it had a specific beginning. And that seems totally, totally illogical too. And so the, Kant thinks the, 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 uh, the answer to that is we shouldn't be speculating about the origins of the universe. Hegel's response basically is that no, it's the universe itself is contradictory. The universe itself is both finite and infinite at the same time. And that sort of contradictory nature of the universe is found all over the place. And Steve Jobs has it in spades throughout all of his life. Uh, he had two sets of parents. One was college educated and the other one was not. Uh, he, he did things like named his company Apple because uh, a computer is not an apple. An apple is something that's totally organic and not a, not a computer. All throughout his life, there are all of these different co contradictions. Um, and I use the phrase that he, that he used, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, which itself is totally contradictory. How can simplicity be the ultimate sophistication? It doesn't make any sense, but he he uh, used these contradictory ideas uh, to drive the um, the dialectical process of uh, of creating the uh, the iMac. That was a fun one to write. <laughs> what are you guys writing? You can read Gizek and Gizek and Derby Hegel. Hegel. Yeah, actually, it was uh, Kara Stoddard. Uh, our uh, our previous uh, uh, English instructor um, who uh, got me hooked on Zizek. Well, I had a friend in, in graduate school, uh, Terry. Terry in graduate school read, read Zizek, but Terry read all sorts of crazy stuff. So I already knew about Zizek, but uh, I have his book, uh, uh, Less, Than, Less Than Nothing, on, uh, on uh, uh, his, his interpretation of the Hegelian dialectic, uh, which is what, what I just gave to you, basically, his interpretation of the Hegelian dialectic. So yeah, I read I read Zizek on uh, interpreting Hegel. That's right. <laughs> you get into this weird sort of Zen experience when you read lots of Hegel. So this is this year, that year, I I read a whole lot of Hegel. I read uh, I read the philosophy of history, and I reread. I had already read this stuff with Frank Flynn as a graduate student, uh, and Frank Flynn's um, um, uh, approach to teaching Hegel was just to read it quickly. Don't try to get hung up on the details because you'll you'll get you'll never make it. Instead, just read it quickly because you got to see the big patterns of how the thought how the thought works. Um, and uh, and so you get into this really weird heads headspace reading lots of uh, lots of Hegel. Uh, and uh, and I really I think that's fun. Yeah, and and Zizek, isn't he great? Uh, oh, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Zizek is, um, has been called the most dangerous philosopher in the world uh, today, so you, you really shouldn't read him. It's really, right? Don't you agree, Barma? They shouldn't read him. Zizek's bad for you. 
<laughs> All right, so this was one I wrote. Again, we are uh, we're they're they're trying to they're trying to sell books. This is a business, and so they want this in the uh, uh, the bookstores uh, when the movies come out. So this came out in uh, 2016. Uh, before all of the uh, uh, Disney uh, sequels came out, um, and so we're just dealing with the original trilogy and the uh, and the and the prequel uh, trilogy. Um, and uh, I was a Star Wars fan since the beginning. I was born 1970, so I was I was seven years old when I was uh, I was seven years old when I was sitting there and I first saw the the, the, the Star Destroyer come over and, go, and then the, the audience shake. And right from that, right from that scene, seeing her coming over, right from that scene, I was hooked, and uh, and I wanted everything Star Wars. And uh, my my parents indulged me. Thanks, mom and dad. Uh, my parents indulged me, and I had a huge collection of uh, action figures and Millennium Falcons. And there were many, 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 many hours spent um, with the with these. I can still make Jen laugh today by saying they're not dolls; they're action figures. Is I can make Jen laugh with the, by saying that. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back was your first movie in the theater. Good. My first movie in the theater was probably uh, uh, Jaws. I don't know. Anyway, um, um, uh, when my cousin Mike visited. So earlier I mentioned when we did Black Sabbath. When my cousin Mike visited, Mike's my age, and so Mike asked me. And again, this is before the latest Star Wars craze, right? The the the, the new Disney uh, movies were not in the theaters yet or anything. And Mike asked me, do you still have your old Star Wars toys? And I do. I have them. On a, I'm kind of a pack rat. So I do. I have them in a box in my garage. And so I went out and I, I got the box and you know, I had been opened in forever. And, and I dug out and I still have all of these old action figures and so forth. And, it, and Mike was the one who who taught me. These are really collectible, Dennis. And you have some rare ones that are really that are really collectible. So that's what I thought I would use as my hook for this essay was collectible Star Wars action figures. I knew everyone else. I, I wanted to get into this one. I really wanted to get into this one. Uh, I don't get accepted to everyone that I send into. Uh, uh, I, I've been rejected several times. So I, I don't want you to think this is all just success. I was I was rejected to um, uh uh, the the big Lebowski in philosophy, for example, right? <laughs> so, so I don't get I don't accept it to all of them, but I really so I really wanted to get into this one because I was a Star Wars fan back in the in the day, and I knew everyone's going to be talking about the Force, and everyone else is going to be talking about Jedi's and things and things like that. I knew all those things would be covered, so I wanted to do something that was different and unique that no one else would be doing, and so I talked about playing with action figures, and I happened to be reading about uh, Daniel Dennett. Um, a lot of the my peers in uh, graduate school, I went to Washington University, and there was a big program called uh, the PNP uh, uh, program called the uh, Philosophy, Neuroscience, and Psychology. It was really fascinating. We had people there who had an extra year of, uh, of classes uh, that the rest of us didn't take. They had an extra year of classes where they were taking psychology classes and and uh, science classes, dissecting brains and things like that. And, and so it was really interesting to be around all these people. And one of my peers, uh, Tad Zedwitzki, had uh, written a book recently about uh, Daniel Dennett that I was trying to make my way through. I'd read several books by Dennett before. Dennett is a long-winded writer. He writes these giant books, but uh, but nonetheless, I had read I had read uh, several of his books. He tries to take some of the things from memes, for example, from uh, from uh, 
Oh, who wrote about memes first? Who wrote about memes first? Um, but uh, uh, anyway, what I took from Daniel Dennett was what he calls the intentional stance, that when I play with my action figures, there's, there's three different ways that I can look at the action figure. One of the ways I can look at the action figure is as a physical object. It's a piece of plastic and it weighs a certain amount. And if I throw it across the room, which I did several times, you know, it's gonna go certain far based on physics. Another way I can look at the action figure is that is its shape and its design, right? It's clearly designed to be, uh, say, a stormtrooper, and its hands got a grip so that you could put one of the one of the weapons into its hands. So that's another way of thinking about it is as a design. So there's the physical part, the weight, the size. There's the design. This is a stormtrooper. It's it has a hand that you could put a gun into, and then uh, the, but there's a third way you can think about it, and you can think about it as having intentions. You can think about the stormtrooper as talking and walking around and doing things and so forth. And why that's interesting is because that's exactly the type of thing that Rene Descartes said was impossible. Rene Descartes said that we are forever stuck inside of our own head. Uh, and all I do is experience the outside world through these windows of my eyes. And I can't even know whether or not other people even have minds. And if Daniel Dennett is right, then we do that all the time, actually. All the time we are making judgments about other people's intentions and the things that they are doing. Now, that may sound really far out and esoteric, but let me tell you one of the ways that it applies to the world. Because I see philosophy all over the place and I see people making philosophical assumptions all the time. So let me give you an example of how it applies to our field here. Um, when we talk about us, uh, uh, course objectives and we write out on the MCO, we assume that we can never know what a person understands. We assume that the only thing we could report is what they are doing, right? The student will demonstrate uh, that they, uh, you know, or, or things like Richard Dawkins. Yes, it's Richard Dawkins, <laughs> right? You all know this, right? On the MCOs, we're very clear. We can't say the student understands. We have to say the student demonstrates on this. And that is making uh, an assumption about the limitations of our knowledge. And if Daniel Dennett is right, then we make assumptions about people's understanding all the time. That when my student can do 10 Venn diagrams perfectly, they understand Venn diagrams. Hey, what do you think? Should we rewrite all of our MCOs? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that people are responding in the chat. That's so wonderful. <laughs> All right, so this is the one that I think this. No, this is not the first Solana series that I did. I, this is the second Solana series that I did, but uh, I'll talk about the first one later. Um, but um, our Museum and Art Center here in Moses Lake has a uh, Salon series uh, where it's at one o'clock on Wednesdays. And I think they're trying to, for the retiree crowd is what they're aiming for. Um, and they've asked uh, uh, some of us uh, uh, local people who have interesting things to say to, uh, um, uh, to, uh, uh, to speak at them. And I try to always say yes whenever they, uh, whenever they ask me. Um, and so uh, this time I happen to be writing this piece about, uh, about Wonder Woman. This is again, coming right before uh, the Wonder Woman movie was, uh, was, was coming out. Um, and so uh, um, 
so this is what the what this one was. Uh, this time, instead of having a uh, you know a catchy title with a subtitle, that's usually how you write. A, uh, I didn't want to always do that, right? Most people do that. You have a you have a catchy title, and then you have a subtitle that explains what it really is about. And I and I'm I'm very familiar with that. I but I didn't want to always do that, and so I wanted to do something else with the uh, with the title. So I did alliteration on this one: Merciful Minerva and a Modern Metropolis. And what I did is I. Uh, as I went back and I read some of the original Wonder Woman books, uh, uh, Wonder Woman car comics. In the very first one, they're very, very explicit about how uh, you know she's got the strength of Hercules and the speed of Hermes and the, you know and the power of Athena. Right? They're very much combining it with uh, with Greek mythology. Um, and I uh, again connected it with Hegel, not the dialectic, but this time with the uh, his uh, philosophy of history. Uh, so Hegel thinks that um, history culminates in Hegel's philosophy in, uh, in uh, Germany in the 19th century, uh, and that they're the inheritors of all of this, uh, uh, all of this that goes before. Uh, but the St. Louis Hegelians, again, I was in St. Louis, and uh, I, I learned about all this stuff. Uh, I went to little bookstores that were off the beaten path. Uh, I, I have a collection, I have a large collection of and old and out of print books in my house from that uh, from that time, and I learned about this forgotten sort of movement, the St. Louis Hegelians, um, and how they they tried to take Hegel's philosophy of history one step further and see um, America as the uh, as the uh, a culmination of history. And certainly, lots of people think that way. Certainly, lots of people think that the United States is the culmination of history um, and that we do things like we put, we make our um, buildings, we make all of our um, uh, federal buildings and so forth look like Greek temples, right? It's got that, it's got that triangle on the top and it's got the, the pillars and the steps leading up. It looks like a Greek temple because we are trying to tell everyone that we are the inheritors of the Athenian, uh, Athenian uh, democracy. Um, and that we are the, the, the light of democracy in the world. So there's, there's deliberate, so it's Hegelian philosophy history, but interpreted through the St. Louis, uh, the St. Louis uh, Hegelians. I should have put St. Louis Hegelians in this. Anyway, that's what I was doing in this one. Right, everyone knows, right? History's over, right? You, you know that there was a famous book written in the 90s Fukuyama, I think was his name. Is that right? About the end of history, the lasso of truth tables. Oh, and if you don't, you should the the um, the, the the man who wrote Wonder Woman is a really interesting character, and uh, he's uh, responsible for the creation of the uh, of the um, uh, lie detector as we as we know it, which was the basis of uh, of her lasso. am I doing on time? Am I doing all right? 726. All right, keep moving, keep moving. All right, so uh, this is another one. There's a couple of these in here. I, I try to note when they happen. There's a couple of these in here where they, um, uh, I, I worked for someone else. I didn't work for Bill. I worked for a different company. Other people got it, tried to get in on the acts and uh, and uh, compete with uh, Blackwell with uh, on these books. And I did write for some of the other ones. This one was a very serious one and they didn't want any silly biographies in the end. So I don't have any jokes or anything like that on this one. Um, and I got myself in some trouble on this one. I, were, I really like the movie Memento and I really like uh, this idea that he was, uh, 
um, that he has his body tattooed with all of this information that he's supposed to use to catch his wife's uh, his wife's killer. Um, and so what I did is I is I used that I I went back to Percy and semiotics. It's the only time that I've kind of repeated myself. I went back to Percy and semiotics. And I showed how these tattoos are supposed to give him clues or information about his wife's killer. But I only did that for a few pages. And then what I did is I undercut it with uh, Plato's critique of writing that's found in the Phaedrus. Uh, in the Phaedrus, you know, it's so funny that, you know, we, we complain about the kids nowadays, right? But they were complaining about kids nowadays back in ancient Greece. And uh, Plato writes in the Phaedrus that all of this writing that they're doing, it's terrible. It's going to ruin their brains and they're not gonna remember anything. Back in my day, we remembered everything and we had these brains that remembered. Now they use writing and it, and it ruins everything. And so I, I used that as an, I used that to, to argue about uh, how uh, Leonard thinks that, they, that the tattoos are um, giving them information, uh, but really they're not because he can't remember correctly uh, what was going on. And I won't spoil it. And it's a 20 year old movie, but I don't want to, I don't want to spoil what was going on in it. But, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, that's what I try to do, but I got myself in a little trouble because if you've seen, if you've seen Memento, uh, the movie unravels uh, uh, backwards. It's one of the things I really like about it. They wanted to uh, give the audience the experience of uh, that Leonard is having of, of not being able to remember what's going on. And so the movie kind of runs backwards. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to write my essay backwards. And so I wrote an essay backwards uh, uh, where all the, the pair, I just basically flipped the paragraphs out of order and I submitted it and the editor's like, what is this? I can't read this. <laughs> what, what are you doing? What is this? This is, this is serious stuff here. And so I, I had to really completely rewrite the, uh, rewrite the essay. But um, anyway, I that was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> and this was the last one that I've uh, that I've done in the pop culture uh, series. So uh, how are we doing? All right, seven thirty. What time did we start? Six thirty. That's pretty good. Um, this was uh, this is another um, a different publisher, uh, Roman and Littlefield, um, and uh, they had already done a Doctor Seuss and uh, and philosophy book uh, of, of the standard sort of style. Uh, that, that what I had been doing in which you take the pop culture and you say, oh, that reminds us of this interesting thing in, uh, in philosophy. So they'd already done one of those. And so the editor explains in the introduction that uh, he really wanted to do something different. Uh, he really wanted to, to have, uh, to use Dr. Seuss to provide sort of a, a guidebook to living an examined flourishing life as, as he writes in the, uh, in the introduction. And so we weren't supposed to do it like the, the bef before just connecting the pop culture to something in philosophy, but we're supposed to more do the philosophy of the pop culture this this time, um, and so it was a little uh, it was a little different, and uh, and I I really enjoyed uh, doing this one. For this one, I used um, uh, Aristotle, and I used his concept of the uh, of the virtue being the mean between the two extremes. Um, so uh, uh, if you uh, well, he uses the example. He starts off with the example of uh, eating. Right. If you eat too much, that's bad for you. And if you eat too little, that's bad for you. You want to eat just the right. That's the healthy amount. And he uses that same uh, analysis to apply to uh, all sorts of different things. Anger, uh, too much anger, you get yourself in trouble. Uh, too little anger, people are going to walk all over you. Uh, you should have just the right amount of anger and anger at the right people in the right way for the right reasons, he says as well. Um, and what I did is I used his section on uh, wit or telling jokes, which I think is a really uh, a great uh, section uh, where he says that uh, a joke is a kind of abuse. 
a joke um, a joke is the, uh, a way to hurt someone and the buffoon does it too much and hurts too many people and uh, the prude doesn't make any jokes at, at all you don't want to be around the prude either uh, you want to be around the, the the virtuous person who is a pleasure to be around and knows when it's appropriate to tell a joke and that's what happens in the cat in the hat the cat is too much he's the buffoon the cat gets people into trouble his jokes uh put people in danger his jokes break things in the house uh so that's the buffoon the cat does uh, too much and then the uh the fish in the tank uh, does too little the fish in the tank doesn't like it when there's too much uh, going on and i found this it was it was like finding gold it was like finding gold i found this uh interview with theodore geisel in which he openly says this that the the fish in the bowl was his version of Cotton Mather, the Puritan who uh, who thinks that uh, you, you should never have any fun at all, and fun is 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 offends God if you have any fun. So he he modeled the the fish in the bowl on the on the Puritans, and the child is supposed to find the way in between those two extremes. Uh, the virtuous person is not like the cat and not like the fish, but somewhere in in between the two. And there's our motto, and this really is one of our mottos, and I do say this a lot in our house. I say it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. Uh, and, uh, and that's right. It is fun to have fun, but you have to know how. Don't be a buffoon. All right, last slide. <laughs> you said this earlier. That's right. It's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. All right, last slide. So uh, those are all the publications that I've done. Thank you very much for, for uh, spending time with me as I walk you through all of these things that I've, uh, uh, that I've written. Uh, that last one was uh, a couple of years ago. I've kind of taken a break. I kind of I needed a break for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> one being I gotta like, I'm, a, I'm a humanities division chair, which takes a lot of time. Uh, I also uh, was a dungeon master, it takes a lot of time, and, uh, but a lot of fun and, I, and, and so forth, uh, and being a father. Uh, but I, uh, here's a list of things that I would, that I would like to be working on, that I am currently working on, or that I, I, I hope to be working on. Um, one of them is I just did this last week. I did a, a salon series lecture, my third, on uh, women philosophers of the early modern period. This is something new that I'm trying to do, is that increase the amount of diversity in, uh, in my classroom. Uh, it's all, well, not, they're not all straight. <laughs> but it's certainly all there's certainly all men pretty much in uh, in, a, in most of the classes that I uh, uh, that I teach and so having some uh, uh, women voices in the early modern period uh, I think is is really fascinating uh, there are seven different women presented in this uh, in this anthology and I presented about three of them uh, uh, at the salon series uh, next week and this is going to be a, a new text that I use in my uh, intro class uh, next quarter I always try to change up my intro class to try to do something something new. Um, I, I, I don't want my students to think that uh, uh, they're learning Dennis philosophy. I want my students to see me struggle with the text with them and that I'm trying to understand what's going on with, with them. So I like it when I assign things that I'm not um, uh, expert at already. Um, I just recently received a call for abstracts for Ted Lasso and philosophy from, uh, from Bill Irwin. Uh, I wrote back to him and I said, well, I could write about Roy Kent and, uh, and anger, but it, I have to be able to use profanity. And, uh, and he's already written back to me and said, uh, uh, he said that uh, uh, you have, you, you, you should use profanity. Oh, thanks. Oh, I'm getting told to kind of wrap it up, I think. Um, 
The first salon series lecture I did was on uh, no hellfire below because well water is cold, the peaceful skepticism of Chief Moses. And I really need to, um, I really need to write this and publish this. If I get this published, this might be um, the most important thing I publish really, uh, because it's a, it's a fantastic story. Uh, and it's about this place here where we live. Uh, Chief Moses was a person who uh, rejected supernaturalism in favor of uh, a, a life on this world. Uh, he wore fancy clothes. Uh, if you look at pictures of Chief Moses, he's always got, uh, he's always got a, a fancy uh, vest on and things like that. Um, and I argue that he was able to keep the peace here uh, in the conflict between uh, whites and the, and the natives uh, uh, by rejecting um, uh, uh, supernaturalism in favor of, uh, of, of this world. Um, uh, so Paul's here tonight and uh, Paul saw me present this uh, essay at a, uh, uh, Paul saw me present a, a, a version of this at a, a Plato Washington, at a conference, right? Do you remember that? I sure do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to get it published. It was great. <laughs> oh, congratulations. It was um, quite a humorous, it was quite a humorous presentation, by the way. Oh, thanks, thanks. There was some um, jokes and laughter in the in the conversation. It really was. Um, I, I, I have a life goal of some someday actually publishing in an academic journal. That's the one, one thing I have not done yet. Uh, is, is get something published. Uh, I think my interpretation of Peirce's fixation of belief as a Hegelian dialectic, I think that's a unique perspective on Peirce that I think I could get published. Um, and also uh, I went to, I didn't know if I mentioned that before, but I did, um, I did present at a Peirce conference in 2018 on um, William Torrey Harris and the St. Louis Hegelians and how the St. Louis Hegelians influ influenced um, the American education system. Um, uh, along right-wing Hegelian uh, uh, lines, uh, which is a story that uh, is uh, largely forgotten because no one studies the St. Louis Hegelians. Again, all the books I have on them are all, are all out of print. No one reads this stuff anymore. Uh, the, only, the only clue to this history um, is that uh, we still say kindergarten, which is a German word. Uh, and that's the only clue that our K-12 education system uh, has its origin in uh, German philosophy. Uh, the whole idea that we have um, uh, primary school, middle school, and high school, it, it goes in threes because of the Hegelian dialectic. Uh, it's, uh, and uh, William Torrey Harris was, very, very, was a very prolific uh, a member of the St. Louis Hegelians um, and became the, um, uh, not really superintendent, but the federal level. He was at the federal level, the, the, the uh, organizer of, uh, of uh, the school system, really responsible for the reason why we have high school in, um, in the United States. And so that's this really crazy story that I discovered uh, by living in St. Louis and uh, being interested in Hegel because it was off limits. Um, and it's this thing that I discovered about the origins of our K-12 education system that uh, I think I need to write up and, uh, and uh, talk about. So anyway, that's it. I'm gonna stop sharing. This was so incredibly amazing. Oh, thank you so much. It's like, I'm breathless just thinking about all of these different pieces that you put together. Ah, oh, I'm not gonna fan myself. This was, it was just awesome. So from here, we're going to go have our panelists ask six questions, and then we're gonna have persons that have been looking and listening to this really fantastic presentation. They're gonna throw some questions at you too, but we're gonna start off with our guest panelist, uh, 
Dr. Paul Herrick. He teaches philosophy at Shoreline Community College in the Seattle area. He's the author of Philosophy and Logic textbooks. And in June 2022, the University of Notre Dame Press will be releasing his next book, and the library probably should get it, Philosophy, Reason, Belief, and Faith. Thank you very much, Dr. Paul Herrick, for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you. Well, uh, there's so much I'd like to ask Dennis. Um, I've been to many conferences with him where in the ev late evening after the meetings are over, a group of us hang out in the bar and have beer and talk about philosophical things. And it's always entertaining when Dennis is in the group. And it's always a lot of fun, but, and, and so many things come up and among them things I'd like to ask him, but uh, I'd like to ask him what he means by the fixation of belief that I'd like to see him, hear him expand more on that. Uh, but I would also like to ask him about what he's learned about the origins of our educational system and the right Hegelians. And, uh, and the third thing I'd like to ask him about, so he can choose which one he wants to talk about. This, this guy could talk about a 50 subjects if we had time. But the, the uh, interesting thing right now to me, I guess, is his dissertation, which he hasn't talked about yet. We've this, this evening's been focusing on pop philosophy, which is great, but his dissertation goes into the deep stuff, and uh, we've talked about it, and I remember that he connects Aristotle, Kant, and Peirce, so he's connecting thoughts from uh, an ancient philosopher, uh, early modern philosopher from the 18th century, and then Charles Sanders Peirce. And uh, can you say something about what you tried to do in your dissertation, David? <laughs> in your dissertation, Dennis? I'd love to, Paul. Thank you for uh, asking about my dissertation. Uh, yeah. Because I probably should publish that too, if I could get it to be redone. So Peirce, so this is about the theory of categories on his um, essay on a new list of categories that was published in the 1860s. Um, when I, uh, um, one of the reasons I chose to write about stuff in the early purse was that um, uh, purse was a mess. He, he, he left behind like 100,000 pages of unpublished stuff. And it's just a, a nightmare, uh, uh, a mess. Uh, but there's a group that has been writing and, and putting together uh, the writings of Charles Sanders Purse in, in chronological order. Um, and when I was in graduate school, they just done the, the first two uh, volumes and the, the, uh, uh, on a new list of categories, his derivation of the categories was in volume two. And so I, for, for one thing, I thought a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of scholarship had been done. That, right? They cleaned up a lot of the writing uh, for me and gathered a lot of stuff. So that was very helpful. Um, but uh, the categories are, are a theory of the ultimate um, constituents of the universe. Aristotle thought that there were 10 categories. Uh, Kant thought that there were 12. Um, and Peirce uh, boils it all down to three. And in many ways, he's influenced by Hegel on this. Uh, and he conveniently calls them firstness, secondness, and thirdness. Uh, um, so there's, uh, there's three different things in the universe. Um, and he um, comes up with this, with this three, I call it a Kantian method because he, he analyzes the things that makes uh, semiotics possible. Since we communicate by signs, how, well, how is it possible that we can communicate by, uh, by signs? Um, and he identifies these three elements that are things that you have to have. Things that have to have a quality, they have to have, um, uh, they have to have relation, and they have to have um, uh, mediation. 
uh, firstness, secondness, and, uh, and thirdness have to happen in, in order for the sign relation to be possible. Um, and I argue in my, uh, in my um, dissertation that this is an abduction, and abduction is the guess at how the universe is work, put together. Uh, and then from that would be the deduction of what would be the consequences of it. And then following that would be the induction, the verification or uh, falsification of that, uh, of that thesis. Um, and so he avoids Kant's uh, transcendental um, uh, idealism. You, you remember Kant is, is, is trapped forever in his experience, and he can't explain how the world itself is, because he insists that we have absolute certain knowledge. And I think that by giving up that quest for knowledge, that the quest for absolute certain knowledge, and instead coming up with um, a good guess for how the universe is put together that, that would then be tested, he's a person is able to, to um, avoid uh, transcendental idealism, but at the cost of it just being a guess. Yeah, right. It, he doesn't. He's not claiming that this is the uh, these are the this is the absolute certainty. We have to deduce what would be the consequences of it, and then confirm or uh, or, or falsify it um, uh, through uh, through observation. What do you think of that, Paul? What do you think? That's, that's very good. Um, <laughs> and so you're a fallibilist. I, I am. I'm a fallibilist. That's right. I am a yeah. fallibilist. Are yeah, you? I, I think we can we can get around Kant's quest for some kind of absolute certainty using inference to the best explanation. And I think you know I'm big on inference to the best explanation, and that's a very fallibilist view. And yeah. uh, we're constantly seeking explanations for what we experience, and we have criteria for what makes one explanation better than another. We have scientists use the same criteria we use in everyday life. And I believe we can reach reasonable grounds through our beliefs using inference to the best explanation, but we don't reach some kind of godlike certainty. We don't need it. Now, our only disagreement here is just on terminology, really, because that's really what an abduction is. And, and mm -hmm. Peirce thinks, thinks that uh, Kant just misunderstands it. So, um, so Peirce uses an example of, you know, I take a sample of grain. Uh, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a train, you know, I've got a car hopper, it's full of grain. And I take a sample of the grain and I find that it's, it's good. Uh, and so I infer from that, that all of the grain is good, right? The, and he, he says that we can understand this as a, uh, in the language of a transcendental deduction by asking the question, what are the conditions that would make this possible? What are the conditions that would make it possible such that if I randomly draw a sample from this, that it comes out to, to be such and such? Um, and so his, his thought is that Kant's transcendental deduction is just, he just doesn't understand inference to the best explanation. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if he did, he could, give up on, uh, he could give up on the quest for certainty and embrace fallibilism. <laughs> well, we don't want to hog the discussion here, but that was good, Dennis. I, I look forward to the next conference and we'll talk more about it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking, Paul. Mm. I don't get to talk about my uh, dissertation very much. And I, and I have yet to write, I have yet to be able to find a pop culture connection to the derivation of the categories. It's a little, mm. it's a little too esoteric, but the semiotics is much easier to use for, uh, uh, for pop culture. Great. Um, I have the next question, Dennis. Um, if you could put your instructor lens on for a second. 
Um, I was wondering what are some, you know, you mentioned uh, in the classroom and you don't want students to just, you know, learn a few things about philosophy. Um, I kind of am curious though what, what your hopes or your, um, you know, further key takeaways after they, they leave your classroom. Thank you for asking that, Tiffany. Tiffany, were you ever one of my students? No, I uh, have not lived in uh, Moses Lake for very long, but I would oh, right, love right. to be one. <laughs> um, well, thanks for thanks for asking. So, what do I want my students to take away from this? Um, it's it's great that you asked that because uh, actually the first time I met Paul, Paul doesn't remember this, uh, but the the first time I met Paul was at a conference called the Big Ideas Conference, uh, and the. Uh, uh, it was, it was all of the uh, philosophy teachers in the state who teach introductional philosophy. And the, uh, the question that we were all asked was um, uh, if introductional philosophy is the only class that our students are going to uh, ever take in, in our field, what are the big ideas that we want them to, uh, to come away with? Um, and it was a wonderful conference. And in part, in part because I, I just love that, uh, that question. Uh, what do we want our students to come away with? If this is it, if this is it, you know, 11 weeks done philosophy, that's it. What do we want to come away with? And the list we came up with was gigantic. I mean, you could make a PhD program out of the list of things that we came up with that we want that we want people to uh, to know. And the, and we're and we're we're so uh, we're so divided in my field. I love my field that there's so much disagreement. We couldn't even agree on something as basic as do you want your class to be done chronologically or do you want it to be done by ideas? Like we're split half and half. I am on the side of chronological. I start with the trial and death of Socrates and then, you know, and, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, but, uh, uh, but half of my colleagues are on the other side that we, no, 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 we want it to be, uh, to be ideas. So I'm going to say, I don't want the, I don't have any specific content that I want them to know. Like, I, it doesn't bother me if they understand Descartes' cogito uh, or, 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 or something. Um, instead, it's, um, it's this um, a feeling of wonder, you know, that there is this great big world of ideas out there um, and, that, uh, and that you can participate in the conversation. Um, and there are all of these great books to read, and there's all these conversations to have, uh, and, to, and to not be afraid to talk about things like uh, God and the universe and free will, and, uh, and is the world really made of atoms, or you know, to, not, to, to not be afraid of asking these questions. So I, I, don't, have any, I don't have any specific contents that I want them to make sure that they, they know. Uh, it's, more, uh, it's more an openness uh, uh, to all of it. I, I'm also very blessed in that um, um, I have I teach classes that are not uh, prerequisites for other classes, right? Like uh, like um, I, I'm not uh, teaching the, uh, a class that I've got a, I've got a set list of things that they have to learn before they go on to the next philosophy class. Uh, I don't have that, uh, which is very uh, liberating, very freeing. Instead, I just have to teach a love of philosophy, a love of, of, of learning all of this stuff. And if, and if they get that, that's what's, uh, that's what's most important. That's a lot of reasons why I like to start with the trial and death of Socrates. I want them to fall in love with Socrates. Uh, I, it doesn't matter what the specific arguments are that he, he, he gives. I want them to fall in love with Socrates. And when, they, uh, when uh, 
uh, they when they when he was found guilty and they had to you they didn't have a, a judge who would assign uh, the penalty right they didn't have a judge who would assign a penalty the way they assigned a penalty is the prosecution would suggest a penalty and then the defense would suggest a penalty and then they would vote again they would vote on which penalty they they wanted and so the prosecution says he's he's bad for society we think the penalty should be death and I think and a lot of other people, I.F. Stone thinks this, a lot of other people think that they wanted Socrates to, to, to suggest exile. In fact, he talks about why he doesn't want to be exiled. All right. So the prosecution says, we want the death penalty. And Socrates says, well, I should be given free meals for life. And they have to vote on whether or not they're going to give him the death penalty of free will. And I think that's hilarious. You know, and so I, and so I, want, to, I want my students to, uh, to fall in love with this character uh, and, uh, and so forth. So thanks for asking that. I really, I, again, just the passion and the way that you answer as much as uh, you're regaling us from your experiences of having passion for philosophy. I'm, I'm enthralled, um, but I want to kind of take it in a different direction as I'm thinking about your process and, uh, you know, I, I teach composition and I think a lot about the process of revision, developing ideas, um, trying to brainstorm, getting stuck with ideas. And so the question that I wanted to ask you um, is that you seem really comfortable taking risks in your writing and it's really clear how it excites you to kind of do that. Um, even if it's not what others expect, because you can always meet their expectations, but you try and push against that. And I really like that. But I'm wondering if there's ever been a time when your passion for philosophy or for writing has waned, or if you've like, um, I don't really believe in writer's block so much as I know that sometimes we get in our own heads and prevent ourselves from doing our processes that help us develop our ideas. Um, so if this has ever happened, I'd love to hear about how it happened or why and what you did to kind of get your mojo back for your writing. Well, thank, uh, thanks for asking that. And of course, you asked that at a time in which I've, I've I've kind of taken a break from writing, you know. I, you know, the last one was like uh, three years ago that I uh, that I did one of these, and so I've, I've kind of taken a a a, a break, uh, uh, from it. Um, and uh, how do I get my uh, how do I get my uh, mojo back on a lot of stuff? Um, so I I do um, um, one of my favorite things about this job is fantasizing about next quarter. Boy, next quarter it's going to be great. Next quarter we're going to do this and this and this, and it's going to be it's going to be great. And uh, uh, sometimes I try things out in a class, and it just doesn't work, and the class is terrible. Uh, but uh, but they're only eleven weeks. They're only eleven weeks, and I only have to deal with my mistakes for eleven for eleven weeks. And I and I really think that uh, oh, next time I'll 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 do it right. Um, Jen and I struggled a lot when we first um, uh, moved here. Maybe this is a good way of answering your question. Um, uh, Jen and I uh, uh, struggled uh, a, a lot when we first moved here. This wasn't what I expected out of uh, out of life, being here in uh, Moses Lake. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that uh, we uh, that helped us was from Epictetus, uh, the idea that um, 
unhappiness comes from wishing the world uh, matched your uh, desires and happiness comes from making your desires match the world. Uh, that complaining that, oh my gosh, why doesn't this place have this? Why doesn't this place have this? Is the, is the path to being unhappy. Uh, uh, but instead making your desires match the world saying that this is something that uh, I've chosen to do. And this is something that uh, uh, has value and meaning uh, to me um, has been a, um, a real lesson for us. Um, I actually have, um, I buy, uh, I, I, I have multiple copies of the handbook by Epictetus. It's only 25 pages long. And I, and I handed out, to, I gave you one recently. I, handed, I gave you a copy of, uh, of Epictetus recently. Uh, uh, and I do hand out copies of Epictetus because that, uh, that idea that uh, um, wishing that the world match your desires is, is, is the path of unhappiness, but making your desires match the world is, uh, is what can make you happy. Um, also, in terms of writing, um, I do uh, try to um, read uh, uh, more in my field. Um, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just now catching up to some of my peers that I knew back in the 90s. You know, a lot of the thing, uh, like you guys mentioned Zizek, like I, I really did have a friend, Terry, in, in graduate school uh, who, who was a Zizek fan and I never got around to it. So 20 years later, I finally do. Um, my uh, friend, uh, uh, Catherine Bradfield, was, uh, went to graduate school to study emotions and everyone's like, emotions? Like, what do you want to study emotions for? You know, philosophy is all about reason and so forth. I, I just recently, this past year, read a, a fascinating book by Martha Nussbaum about uh, the philosophy of the emotions and how the emotions are uh, uh, play into uh, uh, a philosophy. And, and so I do sometimes feel like I'm, I'm, I'm catching up with my peers from, uh, uh, from graduate school, but I try to keep moving and I try to keep learning um, uh, new, new stuff. And that's, and that really, uh, uh, that really helps for a lot. Does that answer? Is that good? All right. All right. Good. <laughs> Give me another one. I think I'm next. I'm not sure, Ron. Is that right? Okay. So um, it's actually Sarah's turn, but if you're ready. Oh. Okay. I'll just go with it then. Is that good? Okay. So I love how you challenge yourself, Dennis. And um, you, you set out these goals to these like um, very interesting challenges to attack and you just, it informs you and it also uh, overflows into your students, all this enthusiasm. And I can tell it just sort of like keeps you really um, so interested in what you're doing and this lifelong learning. I just, I, I gotta say, I just love that. And my question is, kind of different from that, but it does circle around. So philosophy seems very different yet interconnected with politics. And the big commonality is like with people, right? People in philosophy and people in politics. And I'm wondering if you can share some concepts or phrases from philosophy. And it kind of goes with what you just said about emotion, philosophy of emotions. Um, Concepts or phrases from philosophy to help us understand each other during this politically polarized time. There's there's so many. There's so many. I mean, really, there's so many. Um, so I'll give you one. I'll give you one example. 
Um, and this is from uh, an ethics class. So one of the things that um, an education philosophy gives you um, is access to all of these concepts and arguments. All right. Um, there's all of these different terminology. Philosophers love making distinctions and love defining terms and, and so forth. And there's this huge uh, vocabulary of concepts uh, that uh, and arguments that are really useful. They're really useful. And I, and I see them all over the place all the time. So here's one that I explained to my, um, uh, my ethics students um, uh, early in the, in the quarter this quarter. Uh, distinction between um, uh, negative rights and, and positive rights, uh, and this isn't this isn't a term that we use in, in, in every day in uh, in the world. We don't talk about negative rights and positive rights. Everyone just says rights, and we blur concepts together. Uh, I don't like these terms. I don't like I don't like the the I don't like the language because it makes it sound like one's good and the other one's bad. But the idea behind a negative right is just that no one can stop you, right? No one no one's going to stop you. So you have the right to bear arms. That's a negative right. If you want to go to Walmart and buy a shotgun, no one's going to stop you. So that's a that's a negative right. Okay, but a positive right is different. All right, a positive right is one that we are going to help you achieve this goal. All right, uh, and so when we say that a child has a right to an education, we don't just say, well, you know, go get some books. We're not going to stop you, right? Instead, we say, okay, as a society, we're going to collect money and we're going to build schools and we're going to hire teachers and we're going to get kids out of the coal mines and into the schools, right? Because that's that's where kids used to be in the coal mines, right? Get the kids out of the coal mines and into the schools because they have a right to an education, all right? Now, if you take that terminology between positive and negative rights, it illuminates what we're arguing about with healthcare. With healthcare, we're arguing, is it a positive or a negative right? When we say you have a right to healthcare, does it mean that you, well, well you go see a doctor whenever you want, we're not gonna stop you. You might have to pay for it, but you know, if you wanna go. Or by a right to healthcare, do we mean that we as a society are gonna make this possible for you and we're gonna collect money and we're gonna build hospitals and we're gonna make it accessible to people. Now, by giving you that distinction, I didn't tell you which one was right, did I? I didn't tell you which one was right. No, I didn't tell you which one was right. But was it helpful to understand what we're arguing about in healthcare today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, an education and philosophy gives you, I mean, people have been working on these ideas for thousands of years, right? And you can, you have access to all of these uh, uh, terminologies and distinctions and things like that that can really help illuminate how things are going on in the world. Cool, I'm glad I have a good example for you. <laughs> All right, Dennis, I have the next question. So I have heard you say that the gloves come off in philosophy because the philosophical conversations are often about controversial topics, such as the ones you just mentioned. So how do you set the environment or create that safe space to encourage individuals in your class to be authentic in both listening and sharing so that you can have civil discourse? Oh, thank you for asking that because that's a really tough question because I want to be able to have difficult conversations in my classroom, but do it in a way that 
doesn't hurt people. Um, words, words have power. Words, words do things. Words are not just, you know, breath coming out of our mouths. Words do things. Words have power, right? When you say, when Jen and I said, I do in front of Frank Flynn back in St. Louis, it did something. It made us married, right? So words have real power and we can't, uh, we can't ignore that. But at the same time, I want to be able to create a space in which we can um, we can talk about all of these things. Um, I, I work on this a lot. I have a I have a I have a long I have a long uh, uh, description of it on my uh, course syllabus. Uh, my course syllabus says things like, uh, "If I ask in the class why is murder wrong, uh, I don't want you to call the police and say, oh my gosh, my philosophy instructor doesn't understand why murder is wrong.' Right? <laughs> that I want them to I want them to." Uh, uh, talk to me about well, why is murder what what is it about murder that makes it to that literally says that on myself on myself it's not to do that uh part of it is um is uh, is um uh, modeling the behavior i want them to uh uh, uh to uh imitate um and uh, and uh, being the kind of person who will uh, will listen to them when they uh, when they ask these controversial questions, but at the same time draw the line if things are going to go or, or things are going sideways. So so part of it is just a, a modeling on it. Uh, it's something I, I struggle with a lot. It helps that I have such talented uh, 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 colleagues like uh, Dr. Palombo and uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, Rhonda, the librarian, who and Paul Herrick. Uh, we we talk about these issues uh, amongst ourselves a lot. How do we balance these uh, uh, these uh, these sorts of things? Um, and I also um, I like to talk about um, Aristotle and the philosophy of jokes. That uh, uh, that a uh, a joke is a a joke is a kind of abuse. A joke is a, a, is an attempt to hurt someone, um, and a joke is funny when you know your audience can take the joke, when you know that your audience is not gonna be hurt by, uh, uh, by the joke you make. Um, and I've, I've explained this concept to so many different, uh, 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 I'll explain it tomorrow. I'm gonna be at the nursing, uh, I'll be at the nursing, I'll be doing a guest lecture on nursing ethics tomorrow. Uh, and I'll explain that, uh, that uh, oh, we all know this about jokes and you can't just say, hey, I was joking and, uh, and think that that covers what it is that you uh, that you do. Um, I've had a lot of, uh, of people in my class realize, oh, I've been hurting people with my with my jokes uh, just by explaining this concept to them that too, the, the too much is the buffoon, the one who who hurts other people for the sake of a joke. The too little is the is the bore, the person who never makes any jokes at all. And we want to shoot for the middle. We want to be the virtuous person. Um, who knows when it's appropriate to joke and when it's uh, and when it's not? Uh, but yeah, the gloves come off in the in the uh, in philosophy. Uh, philosophy conferences aren't like other conferences. Uh, uh, Paul will back me up on this. So philosophy conferences aren't like other conferences. Uh, they're uh, uh, they're um, you know it's a it's a sparring contest. And when you True. present it, say what? True. True, right? Right. You present a, if you present a paper at a philosophy conference, we in the audience, like we're looking for your weakness. Like we're we're looking for the gotcha question, right? The way that I can I can bring you down, right, as quickly as possible. The story that they told me when I was in graduate school. This is the story we we're supposed to aspire to. This like the story they told us in graduate school was uh, of uh, someone gave an s uh, gave a talk and they 
and they mentioned that we never use we never use a double positive to make a negative comment. And the first question they got from the audience was someone saying, yeah, yeah, which was a double positive used as a negative. Uh, and in two words, you were told you were able to totally destroy this person's thesis and embarrass them in front of everyone. And we were we were taught that that's that's what you aspire you aspire to. So after being in in that environment and uh, and so forth, like the classroom is like, like I have to I, I have to rem I, I tell Jen this sometimes I have to remember that I'm with. Uh, I'm with people who've never done this before, right? I'm with people who've never sparred with a philosopher before. And I have to be, I have to not punch uh, 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 below my weight, right? That I, you know, I, I, I've, I've had these arguments before about, uh, about rights and abortion and euthanasia and things like that, and they haven't. And so I have to make sure that I, I don't hurt people in the classroom as I, because I've been trained to do that. Isn't that crazy to say? <laughs> Does that answer your question? I don't know if I answered. Did I answer your question? All right, all right. Cool. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm going to be your last panelist question before we open it up to others when Tiffany brings those questions in. Um, to survive the pandemic, I pretty much became addicted to Korean dramas, the serials. So when Squid Game came out and I finally watched it, there's some things that are almost always in common about these types of dramas. And one of the things is they almost always have bookshelves full of books. So, you know, as a librarian, I'm there trying to get uh, the names, like what are these books? What do they mean? And they often do have a lot to do, like like a secret meaning of what's going on in there. So I just, I think you're familiar with Squid Game. And there's these two books I wanted to ask you about. One of them is called The Theory of Desire by Lacan. And the other book next to it is going to be Magritte's, a book on Rene Magritte's work. And they're owned by the front man who ends up controlling this terrifying survival game. And uh, how do you think those might fit in with that type of scenario? No, I have to, I have to preface my answer that I have not watched Squid Game. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how exactly. So you just want me to, to, to make a comment about these two, two authors in, the, in particular here. Yeah, like uh, what could those two authors on a bookshelf in a survival game type atmosphere, what could they mean or foretell or suggest? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So first, Lacan. Uh, Lacan, I got to study in uh, graduate school. I, I, I mentioned I took, uh, I took classes in other departments on taboo topics, and uh, uh, I took a course on uh, European intellectual history. Uh, Lacan equals yuck, he said, Jennifer writes. Uh, and uh, um, the professor who taught the course on uh, European intellectual history that did uh, a section on Lacan uh, literally was a psychoanalyst uh, in his uh, in his office. I mean, imagine this, like, you know, like imagine like the stately, uh, you know, professor office, you know, with wood paneling and the floor to ceiling uh, uh, bookshelves, right? Very much the stately uh, professor uh, office. Uh, and in addition, he had a couch, like a Freudian, a Freudian couch where you would lie uh, and he would actually run 
uh, 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 Freudian psychotherapy uh, sessions in his uh, in his office. Uh, so I get to study Lacan with an actual Freudian psychotherapist, which is really fun. Uh, and then earlier I mentioned reading a book by uh, Zizek on um, on Hegel and Barba was uh, uh, saying things about that. The book has two parts. The book, the first part of the book is about uh, about Hegel. And then the second part of the book is about Lacan because Zizek thinks that Lacan is redoing all of Hegelian thought again, but in the in the uh, psychoanalytical uh, uh, world. Um, and so it's all Freudianism. So if there's any, if I mean, a, a good line from uh, from Lacan is that you know the the penis is the ultimate signifier is a good is a a good standard line from from uh, from Lacan. So if there's any sort of phallic uh, imagery or anything like that in the in Squid Game. Uh, this could be a big red flag for uh, for Lacan. Uh, a red flag, of course, we could read that in the Freudian. They once gave us. They once gave us. They 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 wanted to teach us about perspectives. This was in an in service a long time ago. They wanted to teach us about perspectives. And oh my gosh, I'm a PhD in philosophy. And you're going to teach me about perspectives, but let's, okay. So here we go. And they gave us this description of this. Uh, they gave us this description of this house, and we we're supposed to describe this house. Uh, from the point of view of a real estate agent, all right. So I went right out to the real estate agent, and then we're supposed to describe the house from the point of view of a of a thief who's going to break into the house. And I thought this was so boring. I didn't want to do this, and so instead I interpreted the house as a Freudian psychoanalyst uh, and read everything as uh, as, uh, as sexual symbols and so forth. So that's <laughs> that was how I participated in the in the in service. But if there's any sort of phallic symbols, uh, Zizek is also the most famous. Um, a communist philosopher in the world today. Uh, uh, and so uh, he's connecting Lacan and also Hegel to, uh, uh, to Karl Marx and Marxist theory. So any sort of, and, and from what I understand of Squid Game, it's a critique of, uh, you know, uh, consumerist society and uh, the people are in there because they're in debt and they can't pay it off and, uh, and, and so forth. And it's for iron attainment and so forth. So yeah, you can easily get a, easily get a Marxist interpretation uh, from that. Uh, the, the other one was, uh, oh, I'm going to mispronounce it. Gen my wife's going to correct me. The other one was the, the French, the French uh, surrealist painter, right? To Marguerite, is that right? Uh, and his most famous uh, uh, painting is the, uh, 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 this is not a pipe, uh, which he says in French. And it's, got, it's a painting of a pipe and underneath it, it's written, uh, this, is, uh, this is not a pipe. Uh, which is true because it's a painting of a pipe. But it's not an actual pipe, and so it's a it's a meditation on the relationship between uh, uh, symbols and what they are uh, and what they signify. And so I think that there's probably going to be in uh, Squid Game. There's going to be a whole lot of of uh, uh, the treachery of images. All right, all right. So there it is. Oh, Jen's got it. Uh, uh, sine uh, sine un pipe. Oh, I'm not saying it right. She's in it. Uh, but uh, uh, but. Uh, uh, so there's going to be a lot of interplay between um, uh, the, the sign and the things that they're signified. Uh, I assume in Squid Game, from what I've seen in previews, there's a lot of things that that uh, that aren't as they appear, or things that uh, are symbolic of uh, of other things. How was that? Was that good? Yeah, it was actually very, very, very good. Yeah, I, and now I want to ask you about all the books and all the bookshelves and all the series. All right, all right. <laughs> I do have this thing with you. It's like, what would Dennis think? <laughs> so I've never had a tattoo. I've never had a tattoo, but uh, my my joke is that if I get a tattoo, I want to get it right on my arm where people can see it, and I want to get tattooed. This is not a tattoo.
All right. Anything else? Or is that it? You can open it to the to the audience. Who's here? Yeah, there. Uh, uh, if, if anyone in the audience has questions, uh, definitely you could use the chat box or the Q&A box. Uh, there is one uh, here in the box already for you, Dennis. Um, it's, it's not too difficult. But if the question is, if we buy a book, presumably, <laughs> I don't know what book, your book uh, that you're featured in, um, and go to your office, can we get an autograph? I think you're muted, Dennis, but if you're trying to talk. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I typed back, sure. But uh, that's funny, an autograph. Oh, you guys. Uh, I'm not seeing any other questions. So if you want to give it a minute, um, but I'll uh, kind of turn it back over to Rhonda. Such a wealth of information. You shared so much. It's just like I'm trying to absorb it. What do I do about Heidegger? Largely ignore him. That's... Yeah, I don't teach Heidegger. No, I don't teach Heidegger. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I don't teach Heidegger. No, uh, my friend Terry, who uh, from graduate school, he looked like uh, he looked like Foucault, right? He had a black goatee and his head was shaved, and he wore black. Uh, he wore black turtlenecks, and uh, he did uh, presentations on uh, on uh, uh, gender trouble. Who wrote? Uh, who wrote? Uh, uh, who wrote? Yeah, Judith Butler. So yeah, my friend Terry was cutting. I'm like 30 years behind my friend Terry trying to catch up with, uh, with stuff. But he had a he had a copy of Heidegger's Being in Time uh, that he had found that was uh, that the, the cover was black leather. Uh, and so and he would carry it around like it was the Holy Bible. So he had this the, he had this black leather copy of Being in Time that he uh, uh, that he carried around. I'm always interested in the problem of Heidegger. Yeah, Heidegger is a, a what is what is the problem? What is Heidegger's problem? Can I chime in here, uh, Dennis? Say what? Can I chime in here for a second? About Heidegger? Yeah. All right, try it out, because I, I have a theory about Heidegger. What's your theory? Well, Heidegger was popular among hippies and counterculture people back in the 60s. And he's pop <laughs> he was popular among postmodernists. Yeah. Uh, but there's been a movement against Heidegger in the last 20 years sure. when it's come out how closely he, he was aligned with the Nazi party in Germany. Right. Uh, he was the rector of Freiburg University uh, when, when after he was made rector of Freiburg after Hitler took power. Mm -hmm. And to attain that position, he had to join the Nazi party. Right. And so Heidegger was actually a Nazi during the war. And uh, didn't oppose Hitler at all. But what's more worrying is that there are scholars today who argue that in being in time, you actually find a precursor to Hitler's Nazism. I don't know. And it's an extremely abstract book. Yeah. But there are scholars who say this is a precursor to Nazism. 
course, there are scholars who say that about Nietzsche too. So it's a very big debate, but I, I thought I'd throw that in. Uh, Heidegger's pretty much out today among philosophers. Yeah, he was pretty much out when we were in graduate school too. too. It was only uh, you know, people like my friend Terry who would read him. So yeah. this, is my, this is my take on Heidegger, all right? Um, is that Heidegger thinks, Heidegger's taken Nietzsche's thesis seriously. Nietzsche says, I fear we still believe in God because we still believe in grammar. Um, uh, Nietzsche thinks that uh, because we use um, uh, subject predicate uh, language, because we say, I think this, and I do this, and I do this, that there is the I, right? Kogutō ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, is based upon the grammar of the, uh, of the language. And that gives us the idea that we have this soul that is separate from, uh, from, the, from the rest of us. And so uh, the way to try to get around that is to try to write in a way that doesn't use the subject predicate um, a style of language to get around the metaphysical um, presuppositions of our, of our language. The problem is, if you write a whole book that gets away from subject predicate uh, uh, style language, I can't read it. And so, <laughs> and so, and so I can't read Heidegger, but when people tell me about Heidegger, I'm like, oh, is that all he's trying to say? Oh, okay. I, 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 I get it now. But anyway, that's what I think. And of course, the question for Heidegger is if, if the eye doesn't exist, who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? Well, Nietzsche wrote the book, right? We're supposed to restart history from the publication of also Sprach Zarathustra. <laughs> I think we're past time. Shall I let everyone get back to their evening and so forth? Okay, well, um, Tiffany, is there one more question? I see a little number one in Q&A. Uh, there is another question, uh, Dennis. Do you see that one there as is. well? Barbara asked, what's a good introductory book to pragmatism? Um, okay, so um, there, is a, there is an anthology uh, that, uh, I'm a big fan of Hackett uh, Publishing. This is another habit that I picked up from David Souls back at WSU. David Souls would use um, Hackett Publishing books in his uh, introduction to philosophy uh, classes because they have good quality uh, uh, paperbacks that, afford, uh, that, uh, that hold up uh, and at affordable prices. Uh, and they have an anthology on um, on um, on pragmatism that has a lot of the has a lot of the classics, uh, including the meat. If I remember correctly, uh, uh, Rhonda. Uh, no, no, no. If I remember correctly, uh, Barbara is a uh, is a fan of uh, is it George Mead or Herbert Herbert Mead? I can't remember. But it's even got some uh, some of his work in the uh, uh, in the anthology. Uh, but um, the pragmatism of Charles Sanders Peirce is not the same as the pragmatism of anyone else, any of the rest of them. Uh, and so Peirce is going to be in his own little category. Certainly the, his essays, The Fixation of Belief and uh, How to Make Our Ideas Clear, uh, sort of have, uh, are the, sort of the origins of a lot of pragmatic thinking. But his, his thoughts is, are, are very different from, uh, uh, from, the, from the rest of them. Uh, if you want what we normally think of as, as pragmatism, I wouldn't read Peirce. Uh, I, I would read William James. Uh, William James is a, is a very accessible writer. Uh, he's very easy to read. Uh, he was very popular in his day. Um, his book on uh, his book on uh, uh, the varieties of religious experience, for example, is a is a is a pleasurable uh, pleasurable to read. As are a lot of his essays on uh, 
uh, on pragmatism. So if you want sort of standard uh, issue pragmatism, I would I would direct you towards uh, towards uh, yeah George Herbert Mead. Uh, there you go. Uh, I would direct you to reading um, uh, William James. Uh, Charles Sanders Peirce decided that he didn't like what the pragmatists were doing, and so he re-Christianed his the, his philosophy as pragmaticism. Uh, which he said was a name that was so ugly that no one would want to steal it. Uh, and so uh, he doesn't call himself a pragmatist. He calls himself a, a pragmaticist. Uh, and he gets that term from um, uh, Kant, actually, out of the Critique of Pure Reason. Cool. Okay, I'm going to pay some things over here in the chat because I want to make sure you follow uh, the library. Um, the William C. Benatti Library is uh, sponsoring the series, and we're also creating a webpage that holds the podcast and the videos for these pieces. So we hope you'll come to the library webpage. You'll see Dennis's face on the bottom right-hand side, easy to find. And the next few weeks, I'll be building things. I'll be sharing on Facebook, breaking up little pieces and some of the theories and things he mentioned, sharing his books that are available at the library, and all sorts of fun stuff. Coming up next, we're going to have another one in the winter quarter. We've already selected someone to talk at the next one, and that is going to be Re Palvakic. I, I said it absolutely backwards. <laughs> Palkovic. 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 I know. It's, it's living in the South for the past six months. It's difficult for me sometimes to get these consonants correct. <laughs> Thank you. And also, if you know someone else, and we're talking about a student, a staff member, a group that you think should be part of this series, write to me, Rhonda K at bigbin.edu, and we'll look into putting that together because we're looking for somebody for spring. And uh, Dennis, you're awesome. Thank you very much, Dr. Paul. Merrick for coming and helping us out. Is there anything else? All right, you guys have a great night and thank you for attending. Good to see you, Dennis. Good to see you too, Paul. I'm sorry I couldn't make it to the, to, to the conference in Portland this year. Did you guys, has it already happened? Did you guys have fun? We're still it's being recorded. Coming, it's this coming weekend. It's this coming weekend? Yeah. 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 No, well, I can't true. go. Well, I, I appreciate it. I think I'm hoping to get. And that completes our third passion project showcase with Dr. Dennis Knapp. We hope you'll join us in the spring when we have Re Palkovic talk about her life in art. She'll face a panel of very interested people asking her about her life and her inspiration, and she's going to share it all with us, and you too can ask her questions. We hope to see and hear you there. Thank you for joining our project.